What you heard is called the sound of the shofar, and it's especially important for the Day of Atonement. A lot of people do not know how that name came about, so I'll share that with you. It began with Joshua, and he was told to march around Jericho for six days, once around, and then the seventh day to march around seven times, and then to blow the horn. And they blew the horn, and the walls of Jericho fell down, and Joshua was heard to say, Shofar, show good. Let me start with a, one, a rabbi story. That was not a rabbi story. <laughs> uh, the story of it's a New York uh, Jewish rabbi who had a small Orthodox synagogue. He got paid enough to meet his monthly expenses, but never had any money left over. Host had this great desire to visit Israel, but never had the money to go. Being Orthodox, he knew his Hebrew Bible well, but didn't know anything about the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. And uh, but one day, the nation came into the synagogue to pay for the rabbi's trip to Israel for 30 days, and there was enough money for there to bring his wife. So he asked her to come with him. And she, told, and she said to him, well, if I go to Israel with you, I'll have to bring my mother with me. Rabbi says, you know, it's not a good idea. Let's face it, your mother and I simply don't get along. Every time she comes over, we have at least one argument, sometimes two arguments. We'll be in Israel for 30 days. That means at least 30 up to 60 arguments. <laughs> this is not a good idea. But his wife said, listen, if I go to Israel and not bring her, I'll never hear the end of it. She will quetch, she will, she will complain, she'll drive me to early grave. To keep peace in the family, or you can just go by yourself, that'll be fine with me. But if you want me to go with you, I'll have to bring her with me just to keep peace in the family. Rabbi says, well, I don't want to go alone, so go ahead and bring her, and I'll find a way to live with it. Off they go, and as he was afraid, day by day, there was at least one argument, sometimes two. About halfway through the tour, they finally come to Jerusalem. And while they're in the city, his mother-in-law has a heart attack and passes away. Now they need to find out how to get the body back to New York City. New York has a very large Jewish cemetery, more than one. And um, his own family owns several plots. And so he went to the American consulate to find out what he had to do. And the consular worker said, because there was so much red tape in this country, it'll be very expensive. It's going to cost you about $30,000. But Rabbi, she's a Jewish woman. She can be buried right here in Jerusalem for only about $3,000. i will save you a lot of money. Rabbi thought for a moment or two, and then he said, no, 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 no. No matter what the cost, I want the body sent back to New York, and I'll find a way to pay for it later. And the counselor worker says, you must really love your mother-in-law to put out all this expense. She'll be in debt for a very long time. And, uh, the rabbi, and then the rabbi says to him, you know, that's not really where I'm coming from. It's just that I know of a story, and I don't know why I know the story. Maybe somebody told me the story, maybe I read it somewhere, but I know of a story of a Jewish man who was buried here in Jerusalem, then three days later he came back to life. <laughs> I can't take that chance. <laughs> now, on your outline, you'll see uh, how it's broken up. 
I want to do three things tonight. I want to, first of all, give a clear definition of the Keilah, the Ecclesia, or the Church, because the rapture will only affect the Church saints. Secondly, we'll look at three passages that describe the rapture event, but it says nothing about the timing of this event. And then thirdly, we'll deal with the um, actual um, timing of this event, the connection with the tribulation. So in dealing with what is the uh, church, uh, let's go turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. So in this passage, we learn that the church is the body of the Messiah. The body of the Messiah is the in Hebrew, the Keilah, in Greek, the Ecclesia, in English, the church. Now what, is this, now, what is this body composed of? Our second passage is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. Wherefore remember that once ye the Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision, but that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, they were at that time separate from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you that ye that once were far off are made nigh unto the, in the blood of the Messiah. Is our peace who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He might create himself of the two, one new man, so making peace, and reconciled them both into one body, uh, into one body, unto God through the cross, having stained the enmity thereby. Now the writer points uh, begins this paragraph by pointing out God originally had two ethnic groups. Jews and Gentiles. And the advantage of the Jewish identity is that God had a covenantal relationship with the Jewish people. And because of this covenantal relationship, they became his chosen people. And the Gentiles were two things in connection with the, with the covenants God made with Israel. First of all, they were far off, too far away to enjoy the benefits. And secondly, they were um, strangers from the covenants and could not enjoy any of, any of the special promises and blessings. But altogether, God made four eternal, unconditional covenants with Israel. These we call the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, the um, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And these are eternal, unconditional covenants. There's also a fifth covenant that was distinctive. In the fifth covenant, the Mosaic covenant was temporary and it was conditional. And the Mosaic covenant contained the content of the Mosaic law. And one of the, and they're all together, about nine different purposes for why God gave the Torah, the law. But there was one in particular in this passage to serve as a middle wall of partition to keep Gentiles as Gentiles away from enjoying the spiritual blessings of the Jewish covenants. 
And for that reason, they were both strangers and far off from the covenants. When Messiah died, in verse 15, he broke down this middle wall of partition, which was the commandments as ordinances. And then verse 15 says, to create of the two, what two in this context? Jews and Gentiles, one new man. Because now you have a third new entity coming into being. And so in addition to Jews and Gentiles, you have this one new man. And this one new man consists of both Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe. And in verse 16, he reconciled them both into one body. And we learned from Colossians 1.18, the body is the Kela, the church. They may create themselves of the two, one new man. And in verse 16, this one new man is the body. So we learned so far is that the church is the body of the Messiah, and it consists of both Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah who died for the sins. Now the third issue is how do we enter the body? And for this we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter twelve verse thirteen. First Corinthians twelve verse thirteen. For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks were the bond or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. And notice the means by means that we enter into the body is by means of spirit baptism. And the result of spirit baptism is not any specific gift. The result of spirit baptism is membership in the body of the Messiah. And so what we learned so far is three things. Number one, the church is the body of the Messiah. Secondly, it consists of Jews and Gentiles who believe. And thirdly, the means of entering the body is by means of spirit baptism. And so without spirit baptism, there is no body, and there is no body without spirit baptism. So we can determine exactly when spirit baptism began. That will tell us when the body, when the church was actually born. So let's now turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The reason this is important is in all different segments of replacement theology, they claim that the church was already in the Hebrew Bible, some begin the church with Adam. The majority tend to begin the church with Abraham to connect the church with the Abrahamic covenant. Again, if we can determine where spirit baptism began, that's when we know that the church began. The only gospel writer that mentions the church happens to be Matthew. He mentions the body twice. And the reason he would mention it is because he's the one tracing the consequences of Israel's rejection of the Messiahship of Yeshua, the Messiahship of Jesus, something we will detail in our study on Sunday evening. And because of um, that rejection, there are certain consequences. One of these consequences is the birth of this new entity. And so when he first introduced the church, what he did not say, I will continue building something already here. He used the Greek future tense, upon this rock I will build my uh, church. The church did not exist before Matthew 16. But now look at Acts 1 verse 8. For John, excuse me, 1 verse 5, chapter 1 verse 5, 
For John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be, again the future tense, ye shall be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So not only was um, spirit baptism still future as of Matthew 16, it was still future as of Acts 1.5. So we can determine exactly when spirit baptism finally did begin, then we know exactly when the church was born. And the obvious answer would be chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, that is the correct answer, but there was one small difficulty. It does not mention spirit baptism. It does mention being filled with the Spirit. But being Spirit-filled is not the same as being Spirit-baptized. So how can we prove that spirit baptism did begin in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? We can prove it by going to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11. In Acts 10, it is God who sends Peter to the home of Cornelius and through his ministry to these uncircumcised Gentiles. These are the first uncircumcised Gentiles to believe, and they were baptized by the Spirit. And for the first time, you have Gentiles in the body of the Messiah. But Peter stays with them for a while and, um, and also eats with them at the same table in order to disciple them. And in, in Jews did not eat with Gentiles at the same table. So Peter came back to Jerusalem. He was attacked by the fellow Jewish believers of his congregation for why he sat down and ate with the Gentiles. And look at verse 2. When Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you, and, you went in with two men uncircumcised, and you did eat with them. And that was a no-no. And the only Jewish believers not yet recognizing God's new programs, his Messiah's death and resurrection, continued many of the practices, including now sitting at the same table with Gentiles. So Peter defends his actions by two things. First of all, he points out and tells them about the vision God gave him in Acts 10, and he could not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. But the second line of defense is based upon what he heard the Messiah say back in chapter 1, verse 5. Let's skip down to verse 15. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. Let's break this down. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, who are the them, the Gentile believers of Acts 10. Even as on us, who are the us, the Jewish believers of the congregation of Jerusalem at the beginning. And when did the Spirit first fall upon the Jewish believers in Jerusalem? In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. And now look at verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but he shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so Peter points out that the Acts 1-5 prophecy was fulfilled when the Spirit first fell upon the Jewish believers at the congregation in Jerusalem in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So that's when spirit baptism began, and that's when the church began. So summarizing, the church is the body of Messiah, consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers, who are entered the body by means of spirit baptism. And spirit baptism began, Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, and that's when the church began. It's important to understand this because, as we'll see, the rapture will only deal with the church saints. 
Now, the second part of our study has to do with the rapture event. Let's go to John chapter 14. Look at three passages that simply describe the rapture event, but says nothing about the timing of it. John chapter 14. And verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. At my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I come again. and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, this is a discussion that takes place during the last Passover service with them. And he makes an announcement he'll soon be leaving them for a longer period of time. And while he's away, he'll be building a place for them. And only when the place is fully prepared will he come for them to take them to where he was then going. He was then going to heaven. And so he will have a special promise of a special coming for believers only for the purpose of taking them to heaven. Nothing in the passage specifies the timing of this event. It simply promises a special coming of the Messiah for the purpose of taking the believers to where he was then going, to the place in heaven, and for them to indwell the, uh, the building or the structure he was going to go back to finish building. The second passage will be First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thess chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 13. We would not, uh, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that you saw are not, even as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Yeshua, Jesus, died and rose again, even so them also that, that um, fall asleep in him, in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive that are left unto the coming of the Lord shall in no wise precede them that are falling asleep. Now Paul's basic procedure is to go to a new city, and the first place he would go to would be the synagogue to give them the gospel first, and then to the Gentiles. And with the um, Jews and Gentiles he who believed, he organized them into a local congregation, a local church. He would stay with them long enough to teach them the whole council of truth, the whole body of truth. He also trained people to serve as elders and deacons, and then he would move on going elsewhere to start the same process all over again. He, could not, he was not able to complete the process in Thessalonica because persecution broke out very early, and as a result of the persecution, he had to abandon the city, flee from the city, and therefore many questions remained unanswered. It's obviously taught them certain truths about the rapture, but the question that remained unanswered is, if a believer dies before the rapture, will he miss out on the benefits of the rapture? This was not merely a curiosity question. People died in that persecution, and since they died, and the rapture not yet had occurred, then will they miss out on the benefits of the rapture? 
you don't have to be a believer very long to realize just how, how fragmented the church has become. In our day around the world, there are clearly more than a thousand different denominations. And, uh, and, and uh, this, it's just the church has been divided over many different things and many different issues. And uh, as a result of this being so much fragmentation, uh, a lot of differences of doctrines in many areas between different denominations and different churches. And one of these issues has to do with the topic we're doing with tonight. And, uh, and uh, while there are many denominations, um, they've got all different kinds. For example, in this country, the largest denomination happens to be the Baptist Church. We have more than one Baptist group here. Here we have the Southern Baptist, the American Baptist, the Conservative Baptist. We have the, the um, uh, Calvinistic Baptist. We have the Free Will Baptist. We also have the Federal Association of the Regular Baptist. We have the Bible Baptist, and we have the Bible Baptist. There's nothing, and then you have also fragmented among the Brethren churches, and there's more than one Brethren group here in America. We have in this country the Plymouth Brethren, Brethren, the Grace Brethren, the uh, Mennonite Brethren, among others. And it's perfectly all right to be a member of any of these Brethren groups, but there was one Brethren denomination the Bible forbids anyone to join. That's the Brethren group he mentions here in verse 13, where it says, I would not have you ignorant, Brethren. Never join any church called the Church of the Ignorant Brethren. The Bible forbids it right here. What he doesn't want him to be ignorant about is the correlation between dead saints and the rapture of the church. And that, as he points out at the end of verse 15, that um, the uh, living believers will not receive the dead ones. In fact, the dead ones will, will be able to receive the benefits of the rapture before the living ones do. And it goes on in verses 16 and 17 to point out there's a chronological sequence in the rapture event in seven distinct stages. These seven distinct stages happen very quickly, but there'll be seven distinct stages. Stage number one, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. A time will come, he will rise up from where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and return to this earth's atmosphere. Stage number two, with a shout, and the Greek word for shout is that of a military command, and he uses military terminology in describing the rapture event in this passage. And when a chief commander came out of his chief commander's tent, he would give an order for something to transpire. Now, chief commander comes out of his heavenly tent, he'll give an order for the process to begin. And then stage number three, with the voice of the archangel, this continues the military motif. There is only one archangel whose name is Michael, and in keeping with the military motif, when the chief commander gave his order, the order will be repeated by the sub-commander. And so the sub-commander, Michael here, will repeat the order of the chief commander. And then stage number four, with the trump of God. Again, continue with the military motif. After the chief commander gave his order, followed by the repetition of the sub-commander, the person with the trumpet will make a specific sound. And based on the sound that he makes, the soldiers will know how to respond. 
And then what comes to stage number five, the dead in Messiah, in Christ, shall rise first. My, my wife is, uh, grew up as a Presbyterian. Her father was a Presbyterian minister. And um, you have Presbyterian groups that are Bible-oriented, but the one he was a member of was one of the largest Presbyterian groups that become very liberal. He's one of the last of the believing pastors in that denomination. And as, so because of so much liberalism, uh, that denomination had become rather cold. So often during our courtship time, I would sometimes tell my future wife that according to the Bible, whenever the rapture occurs, the Presbyterians will get to go first because it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And maybe why it took us seven years to finally agree to the wedding. But this explains what he meant back in verse 15. Before the rapture event will affect any of the living saints, will affect the dead ones first, and the dead will be resurrected. Here's the phrase, in Christ. Now, Paul uses certain phrases in a very technical manner. He talks about in Jesus, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in him, in whom, in the Lord. These are technical terms for those who are baptized by the Spirit into the body of the Messiah. And this phrase shows that the rapture event will affect only church saints. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints will take place at a different point in God's prophetic uh, timetable. And, um, and so in this uh, event, uh, those who are dead are going to be resurrected first. Only after he's resurrected the dead saints of the body, then comes stage number 6 and verse 17, that we who are alive the left shall together with them be caught up into the clouds. Now the rapture, uh, often the rapture in our days is under rather heavy attack. Most of the attack is against those that hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. But in the modern day, there are more and more groups that simply deny the rapture event. Uh, that no, there's no such thing as a rapture. Now, I run into them in my travels, and one of their arguments, the first argument they use is, the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Bible. That's correct. The word rapture is not found anywhere in the English Bible. But technically, folks, no English word is found in the Bible. <laughs> not a one. What God gave us by Scripture is primarily Hebrew, secondarily Greek, early Aramaic. But English or French or German, these are translations of what the Hebrew may say, the Aramaic may say, or the Greek may say. My response to them is, do you believe in the Trinity? And these people come from mainline denominations. Their first response is, well, of course. Well, that word is not found anywhere in the Bible either. At least the Greek word for raptures we'll see was found in the Greek text of verse 17. So the term Trinity is not found anywhere in the Hebrew text, Aramaic text, or, or um, Greek text. Why do you believe in the Trinity? The issue is not what the specific word is found in, in Scripture. The issue is what do we mean by that term? Is what we mean by it found in Scripture? What do we mean by Trinity? In that we believe there is only one God. Yet the Bible reveals that this one God exists in three personalities. The Bible calls the Father God, it calls the Son God, it calls the Spirit God, but doesn't teach three gods. It teaches only one God. So taking this biblical concept and gave it a one-word title, Trinity or Triunity. 
the word itself is not found anywhere in Scripture, regardless of the original writings. But what we mean by it is found in Scripture. What do we mean by rapture? The Greek word for rapture is harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. It means to either be caught up or to be raptured. You can use it, use it with either word. And it simply refers to the catching up or the rapturing of the living saints. Is that found anywhere in Scripture? Right here in verse 17. We shall together with them be caught up in the clouds. We can go ahead and change the terminology. We'll drop the word rapture and simply talk about the catching up. Having changed the terminology, we haven't changed the content of the doctrine of what the Bible teaches. And so while the dead believers are resurrected, living believers are raptured or caught up. And that'll be the sixth stage. Then stage number seven, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we evermore be with the Lord. And once we meet the Lord in the air, where do we go? And those who believe that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation claim that we meet him in the air and then make a U-turn and come back to the earth. But the promise of John 14 is he's, he's, he's going to come to take them to where he was then going. And therefore, the end product of the rapture is to bring these church saints dead and living and changed into heaven itself. So this passage describes the rapture event, the chronological sequence of the rapture event, but says nothing about the timing of it. Our third passage will be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The context comprises verses 50 to 58. Verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. This point so far is the kind of bodies we now have, bodies subject to corruption, bodies subject to mortality, are not the kind of bodies with which we can enter into the eternal state. And so at some point there needs to be a change in the nature of our bodies. And for the uh, believers of the body, that change will occur at the time of the rapture event. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And note the word mystery. In the Greek text, the word mystery does not have the same meaning as we have it in English. We say something is a mystery, referring to something we don't have an answer for, something we don't yet understand. But in Greek, it refers as a very specific meaning. It refers to something that was previously unknown, only now being revealed by the New Testament. Something totally unknown, unrevealed in the whole Hebrew Bible, only now being revealed in the, in the New Testament by the, by the Messiah and by the apostles. Now, how do we derive at that definition? Keep your finger here and turn momentarily to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, we'll look at verse 3. How by that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, does that term? As I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Messiah, again the word, now look at verse 5. Which in other generations 
was not made known unto sons of men, as it has not been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. A New Testament mystery is something previously unrevealed, nowhere known from the Hebrew Bible, only not being revealed by the pages of the New Testament, by the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Let's skip down to verse 9. And verse 9, to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery, again our term, which for ages has been hid in God who created all things. For ages, for dispensations, it was hidden in God, only now being revealed through the New Testament apostles, New Testament prophets. Now look at, at uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 25. Whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given me to you, word, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, there's that term, which had been hid for ages and generations, but now has it been manifested to his saints. And again, the mystery is something previously unrevealed, unknown, now finally being revealed, by the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Altogether, there are, divine, there are eight divine mysteries and two satanic mysteries revealed in the New Testament. And one of these eight divine mysteries is the mystery of the rapture of the church, because that was not revealed anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, something they would not have known from the Hebrew Bible. We all shall not sleep. We shall all be changed. All of us are not going to die. All of us will undergo a specific type of change, dead and living. But not everybody is going to die. Then he says in verse 52, In a moment, the Greek word for moment is the English word atom, in the atom of time in the twinkling of an eye. And then he mentions three of those stages that we saw in the Thessalonian epistle. Stage number four, the trump shall sound. Stage number five, uh, at the last trump, the trump shall sound. Stage number five, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And then stage number six, we shall be changed. Now notice in both the Thessalonian epistle also here, Paul identifies himself as being still living if, if the rapture occurs, that could occur in his lifetime. He identifies himself not with those that will be dead, but those that will still be living in these two epistles, Thessalonians and here. And, uh, and so at the time of the blowing of the trumpet, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and the living shall be changed. Verse 53, but this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruptible has put on in corruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall come the saying uh, that is written, dead is swallowed up in victory, and so on at the end of the chapter. He points out the dead believer whose body has suffered corruption, corruption will put on incorruption. And living believers in mortal bodies, mortality puts on immortality. And these are the kind of bodies we shall have to be able to enjoy the eternal order. The passage says nothing about the timing of this invasion. 
It simply emphasizes the need for the body to change for both the living and the dead when this event occurs. Now, those who are post-tribulational, those who believe the church will go through the tribulation, do use one phrase here at the last trump. Identify the last trump as being the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11. And I point out both mid-trips and post-trips use the same argument. They simply disagree among themselves the timing of the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So the last trump will have to be the uh, seventh trumpet. Now, this is, this is not what Paul can be referring to. Notice um, he says the last trump, definite article, a specific one. And at this point, they, well, this is what they could not do. They could not pick up, pull out the book of Revelation, turn to Revelation 11 and say, well, this must be it. They could not do so because Revelation had not yet been written. It won't be for about another 50 years. And yet, he says, the last trump expects them to know what he's talking about and writing to these, um, these churches like this one that he was a founder, they would know what he said because in Corinth, he had a lot of time uh, to, to deal with Scripture, to teach them the whole counsel of God. And because you have the free time to teach them the whole counsel of God, that will include the seven festivals of Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, uh, Moses outlined the chronological sequence of the seven holy seasons of Israel. And the purpose of Leviticus 23 is not to give us all the details about each festivity. For example, he spends one verse on the Passover. Other details are given elsewhere in Mosaic writings. And therefore, the purpose is not to give the details, but to give the chronological sequence of how they have to observe these things because they'll be fulfilled in the same order in which they will fall. And so in the seven feasts of Israel, they're divided into two uh, sections. You have the fall season and you have, uh, you'll start with the spring season and begin and continue with the fall season. And the spring cycle of festivities contained the first four and the first four were fulfilled by the program of the first coming. But number one, the feast of the Passover, which was fulfilled by the death of the Messiah. Secondly, the feast of unleavened bread, fulfilled by the offering of his sinless blood. Thirdly, the feast of first fruits, fulfilled by the resurrection of the Messiah. And fourthly, the feast of weeks, which was fulfilled by the birth of the body of the Messiah. You have a four-month break, and you have um, the last three, which also come close together, but even closer. The first four come within 50 days of each other. The last three come within two weeks of each other. And these are the Day of Atonement, the Feast of, uh, uh, the feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled by the Messianic Kingdom. And the, the Day of Atonement is fulfilled by the, uh, by the Tribulation and by Israel's National Atonement in the Tribulation. But the Feast of Trumpets comes before both of those. Already in this one epistle, he's made several references to some of these festivities. Turn back to chapter 5 for a moment. Chapter 5, and look at verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6, Your glory is not good, nor you not a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out the old leaven that she may be a new lump, 
even as your own leaven, for Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And you have the Passover fulfilled by Messiah's sacrifice. Then the very next verse, he deals with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 8, Wherefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, either with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this was fulfilled by the offering of his sinless blood. Now in chapters 11 through 14, 11 through 14, he deals with the Feast of Weeks, uh, dealing with the concept of the body. But now look at chapter 15, and look at verse 20. Chapter 15, verse 20. But now hath Messiah been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that are asleep. And here he connects the Messiah with the Feast of First Fruits, which was fulfilled by his resurrection. What he does in chapter 15, verses 50 to 58, is to make one more uh, festival connection, this time with the Feast of Trumpets. So what does he mean by the last trump? If you go to any synagogue service on this occasion, you will you'll hear the sound of um, altogether 100 trumpet sounds, 100 sounds of the shofar. And the first 99 notes are three different lengths. Some are short, some are long, some are staccato. It is a mixture of these 99, going back and forth between short, long, staccato, and back and forth. When the blower gets, comes to the 100 note, it's called the Tekiak Dola, meaning the great trump and also the last trump. And it's as long as the blower can hold his breath. And in Judaism, it is a symbol of the resurrection of the Jewish people in order for, by the Messiah for them to enter the Messianic kingdom. And Paul picks up the resurrection motif notice with the, with the last trump, but he applies it to members of the body of the Messiah, the last trump the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, the living, shall be changed. And so, what he, and so the last trump is not the seventh trumpet of Revelation. The last trump is the great trumpet sound, the Tekiak Dolan, of the Feast of Trumpets. That will symbolize a resurrection, but in this scripture, the resurrection of the body of the Messiah. So if this says anything about the timing of this event, it would imply a pre-tribulation event. But just as trumpets comes before the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement is a day of Israel's national atonement, but at the same token, the Feast of Trumpets comes before the atonement, and therefore the rapture will come before the tribulation starts. That's not really his point here. His point is the need to change the body at the rapture event. So as far as... Um, Timing, none of these three passages actually mention the timing of it. Let's go to our final part, which has to do with the timing of the event. And let's begin by turning to Luke chapter 21. Let me begin with one simple observation. There's no passage that describes the tribulation, and there are many such passages in both Testaments, that ever mentions the body of the Messiah. It doesn't mention the ecclesia, the kela, or the church. And nobody holds to either a mid-tribulation view, or three-quarter tribulation view, or post-tribulation view, can never take you to any passage of Scripture that mentions the church in any tribulation context. 
And the scholars among the post-tribulationists do admit this. If you read the scholarly writings, they admit there's no specific passage to put the church into tribulation. But they conclude not because they, from exegetical reasons of Scripture, but they conclude this simply because their theology requires them to make that conclusion. And, uh, and so there's no passage that I'll be able to show you. And because they don't have a passage, they have to use a backdoor approach to sneak us into tribulation, and they use two different backdoors. The first door I, I call the... Uh, the uh, saint's door. And the way they, the logical argument is based upon a syllogism, major premise, minor premise, conclusion. And in this first syllogism, the first point they make is, all saints are church saints. All saints are church saints. Minor, minor premise, that, that, that the saints are in the tribulation, and of course there are saints in the tribulation, therefore the church will be in the tribulation. It's a logical conclusion based upon the accuracy of the first premise. Is the is the church uh, is is the uh, the saints of the body actually members of the body of Israel? And the answer is no. When I did my dissertation at New York University. I checked out every passage in the New Testament that mentions the word Israel. Israel in the New Testament is mentioned exactly seventy-three times but not once is it used of the church. It's either used of the Jewish people in general, or Jewish believers in particular, but it's never used of the church. So they begin with a premise they simply cannot prove, and they run with that. So that's what I call the, uh, the uh, saint's door, the Israel dorm, is that uh, the church is the new Israel, and the Bible does show Israel is in the tribulation, and therefore the church is in the tribulation. But again, as I've just mentioned, the word Israel is never used of the church anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. So again, there's a simple observation. No one can take you to any passage of Scripture that shows the church, the Kela, Ecclesia, is in the tribulation. Now look at chapter 21. Luke has been describing the tribulation events, and when we come to verse 35, notice what he says. For so will it come unto all them that dwell on all the face of the earth. Notice how inclusive he is. It's going to fall upon all them that live upon the whole or all the face of the earth. In other words, if you're on the earth, the tribulation judgments are inescapable. So there were, if there is a way of escaping, it cannot be here on the earth. Now look at verse 36. But watch here every season, making supplication that she may prevail to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And the result is, the way of escaping the tribulation is by standing before the Son of Man. And that's the result of the rapture. And to stand before is often a, 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 in the context of evaluation and judgment, that we all stand before the judgment seat of the Messiah, and how we have served the Lord will be evaluated, and that will determine our rewards and our place of authority in the Messianic kingdom. But you have a clear statement between what's on earth, where you cannot escape, against the heaven, which by which you can escape, a clear pre-tribulational concept. Now we'll go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9, 1, 9, For they themselves report concerning us what manner of entering we had unto you, how you, how you turned unto God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, even Yeshua, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Bible talks wrath in the element of the wrath of God. It discusses it in two time zones. First of all, there is the present wrath of God against sin. As in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But the second way the term is used is of the future wrath, the wrath of the tribulation. And the wrath of the tribulation is, uh, covers all um, the tribulation judgment uh, chapters. From Revelation 6 to chapter 18, you'll see the wrath of God mentioned frequently. And, and so the second wrath that we are, I believe is about the way, are going to be exempt from both kinds of wrath. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Romans 5, 9, we are delivered from the present wrath of God against sin, but we, sh uh, we shall also be delivered from the future wrath of God. This correlates well with the passage of John 14 a special coming for the, of the Messiah to take us to where he was then going, to take us to heaven. And here's the additional reason why he'll take us to heaven, so we are not going to have to suffer the wrath of God. The Messiah already suffered the wrath of God on our behalf when he was on the cross. Now we'll go to um, chapter 5. Chapter 5. He discussed the rapture in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that ought be written unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Uh, when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon women with child, and they shall in no wise escape. Now, the, uh, the verse begins with the, with the two words in English, but concerning, reflect two Greek words, peri, P-E-R-I, and the word death, D-E, peri, there. And what peri there often does is introduce a new topic. So he was talking about one topic previously, but now introduces a brand new topic. You see this frequently used in the book of 1 Corinthians, Anytime you see the English phrase, but concerning this or but concerning that, in Greek it is very there. He's now introducing a new topic. So he's been discussing the rapture of the church, but now his new topic is found in verse 2, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah. And this is the most common term in both Testaments, but we now simply call it the tribulation. Our most common term today is tribulation, the great tribulation, but the most common term in Scripture is the day of Jehovah or the day of the Lord, a time of the pouring out of the wrath of God. And he points out in the following verses, especially verses 4 through 8, it will 
that they will not overtake the believer as the thief. Why? Because falling back on the way the dear Lord described, especially in Zephaniah and somewhat the same in Amos, that the day of the Lord is a time of blackness, a time of darkness. And because the believers of the light and of the day would not overtake the believer, will overtake the unbeliever because the unbelievers of the night and of the darkness. And he spells out uh, in verse 9 why. For God appointed us not unto wrath, but to the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus the Messiah. And notice in verse 9, not been appointed to wrath, the antecedent to the word wrath is in verse 2, the day of the Lord, we have not been appointed to that period of time, that specific day. And the means that we're going to escape that day, he already expanded upon in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Addressing the church, he says in verse 10, 3.10, Because you did keep the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, that hour, which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Notice why he does not say in this verse, he does not say, I will keep you safe in the hour of trial or the time of trial. I will keep you the very hour of it, the very timing of it. That those who oppose trip, not all of them, but many of them, claim that this is only promising the church safety in the tribulation. If that's the promise of verse 10, God will keep the church safe in the tribulation, something goes terribly haywire. And why? Because as it begins to move into the tribulation passages with chapter 6, in chapter 6, saints are getting killed. Chapter 7, saints are getting killed. Chapter 11, saints are getting killed. Chapter 12, saints are getting killed. Chapter 13, saints are getting killed. Chapter 14, saints are getting killed. Chapter 17, saints are getting killed. And chapter 18, saints are getting killed. So chapter 3, verse 10 is promising the church safety in the tribulation. God is doing a terrible job of it. Saints are getting massacred all over the tribulation. The only way that 310 can be kept be consistent, what we see in chapter 6 to chapter 18, is that is the church saints that are going to be kept uh, from that period of trial. But those who choose to believe only after the rapture don't have the same promise, and therefore will suffer when the tribulation hits. And um, in, in all these chapters, and notice that John is not averse to using the term church. And he uses the church frequently in the first five chapters. But the church is not mentioned one single time in chapter 6 to chapter 18. Not even once. The church is mentioned again only as of chapter 19, which are the events that will follow the tribulation. So again, nobody can show you a passage of tribulation that mentions the church. Let's go to Revelation 19. This will be our last passage.
In chapter 19, in verse 11, to the end of the chapter, verse 21, 11 to 21, he describes the second coming of the Messiah. But in the first 10 verses, he describes events in heaven before the second coming. One of these events is the marriage of the Lamb. And look at verse 6. And I heard as a worm, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, the voice of mighty thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. Let us give the glory unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife had made herself ready. It was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Notice the event, event that takes place in heaven before the second coming is the marriage of the Lamb. And in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, we learn that the groom is the Messiah and the bride is the church. The bride is the, uh, is the Kela or the Ecclesia. So notice that the church is already in heaven before the second coming. And furthermore, she did not just arrive, because what she is wearing in verse 8 is fine linen, and identifies the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So not only is the church already in heaven before the second coming, she's undergone the entire process of the judgment seat of the Messiah. And every member of the body and the church are going to stand before the Messiah, and how we serve them since we believe can be evaluated. And when we are serving the Lord, fulfilling his will, we're building with wood, with uh, gold, silver, precious stone. When we are disobeying him, when we are not living for him, we are not honoring him, we'll be with wood, hay, stubble. And how much wood, hay, stubble we accumulate is irrelevant. Once fire is applied to wood, hay, stubble, it will go into nothingness. And fire applied to gold, silver, precious stone will purify them. Is the amount of gold, silver, precious stone that we have accumulated that will determine our position in the Messianic Kingdom. And that will be the position of honor. And the details, by the way, of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. He points out that there will be some believers that will have nothing to show for their life as believers. He points out they'll still be saved. It will not affect their salvation will have to pay the consequences of a lack of reward in the Messianic Kingdom. Now, we often think that the rewards are going to be limited to those that do the more important work, and that's not true. It's not those who simply who preach and teach and so on, but as Jesus said, even if you do something as small as giving uh, somebody a glass of water my name, this will not go unrewarded. And there's more to a local congregation they're preaching and teaching evangelizing. The carpet needs to be cleaned, the church needs to be cleaned, the windows need to be washed. And if we do this with the with the with the um, focus, I want to honor the Lord in some way, all these actions will be rewarded. If we merely do it because somebody has to do it, there's no reward in that. If we constantly do it, I want to bring honor to my Lord. It will be rewarded. There are many different ways you can increase your reward. For example, if you serve um, real coffee and not instant coffee, the reward's going to go up. If you and then if you serve um, uh, 
regular coffee and not coffee without caffeine, the world will go up even further. I never drink coffee without caffeine. To me, it tastes like a cow's afterbirth. That's how God is. That's how God is named. When a kid, when a cow gives birth, he decaffeinates. It may not be good, but it's original. <laughs> if you look into the greater world, if you serve um, gourmet coffee and not restaurant coffee, the world goes even higher. But, the, but again, that has to be done with the with the with the purpose of bringing honor to our Messiah, and these things would not be unrewarded. So with this study, I hope you realize that I am premillennial, I am pre-tribulational, I am pre-everything. I won't even eat post-toasties for breakfast <laughs> to avoid any connection with that teaching. Let me just uh, mention something I only bypassed yesterday. What we publish every two months is a booklet like this. It's the REL Prayer Band. As you go inside, you will find uh, in this pamphlet um, from all our branches around the world, the top part is prayers that have already been answered, and then the bottom part is a new prayer requests. And we encourage people to pray for our ministry, these different branches around the world. And when I do my quiet time, each quiet time I pick one of these pages and pray through it and so on. So if you wish to receive it, you can either go to the, our online, ariel.org, or you can just simply give us a note that you can leave on the table, giving us your name and address, just put on it the prayer booklet. The prayer booklet will be happy to send this to you as long as you want to continue receiving it. All right, we'll go ahead and take our offering at this stage for Ariel Ministries. And after the prayer, I'll, I'll give you our, the next rabbi story. I wasn't planning to. Okay. Okay, I'll do, I'll do a short version. Those of you who were here yesterday, Ariel is a Hebrew word meaning the Lion of God. And this emphasizes what we are Jews who believe in the Messiahship of Yeshua, the Messiahship of Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Lion of the tribe of Judah. What we do, and what we started to do and continue to do since 1977, is first of all to teach the word, of, is to evangelize or share the gospel of Jewish people. And this is done in the branches we have in now. Uh, 10 different countries and two new ones soon to come into being. And the second thing about uniqueness is that we emphasize teaching the Word of God intensively from a Jewish frame of reference. This involves two different elements. First of all, God's plan and program for Israel, which is what's going to be covered in these first three sessions. But second emphasis is teaching the scriptures from the, new, from the first um, century Jewish context out of which the Bible came, the New Testament came. And so we, um, we so about to get a, a taste of this on Sunday night. And so we have a lot of in, intensive studies on the life of the Messiah from Masculine Jewish perspective. And this is our second major emphasis. So the offerings will be for the support of this ministry and for the support of the many branches we have around the world. This is not the rabbi story. Because the rabbi was having trouble with his teeth. He went to the dentist and had the problem fixed, but the problem kept coming back. So after several visits, the dentist tells him, Rabbi, if we keep doing it this way, it's going to cost you more and more money as time goes on. Let me give you another option. Let me pull out your bad teeth. I'll fix you a good set of dentures. 
it's a bit expensive at the front end, but I, I assure you in the long term it will save you a lot of money. The rabbi agreed and had the procedure done. When the first Sabbath came in the synagogue service, I should say, that after the reading of the uh, Torah, the Law and the Prophets, as the rabbi gets up to teach from a certain passage or one or the other, and he speaks for about 20, 30 minutes. But that the, the first Sabbath after his procedure, he only spoke for five minutes, and he suddenly quit. The next Sabbath, he got up and spoke for 10 minutes, and he suddenly quit. But then on the third Sabbath, he started to speak, and he kept on talking and talking and talking for about four hours. Didn't even stop the preach, just kept on talking. Afterwards, the elders of the synagogue pulled him aside and said, Rabbi, we have to talk to you. We don't understand what's been happening to you. The last two Shabbats, you were, you were rather short, but this morning, this was way, way, way too long. Rabbi explained what happened. He says, two weeks ago, so after my procedure, and after about five minutes, my gums began to hurt. I just had to quit. Last week, I was getting used to my new dentures, and after about 10 minutes, they weren't quite fitting right. They began to slip after quit after 10 minutes. What happened this morning is I got up, and I wasn't paying close attention. And by accident, I put in my wife's dentures, and I could not stop talking. LAUGHTER